And why? Why aren't you disturbed about the inhabitants of the great land of Australia, which is completely unknown to us? We are we are just passengers, all of us, on the same ship. They they occupy the bow and we the stern. You see that the bow and the stern has no communication, and the one end of the ship has no idea what the people are at the other. Oh. I count the inhabitants of Australia as known, because surely they must resemble us closely, and we'll ultimately know them when we want to take the trouble to go and see them. But we'll never know the people on the moon, and that's heartbreaking. Hello and welcome to Digging Up Ancient Aliens. This is the podcast where we examine the TV show Ancient Aliens to the claims on water to an archaeologist or other better explanations out there. I'm your host Frederick and you're listening to episode 26 and the quote that you just heard just before the intro music was from Fontanelle's Plurality of Worlds. And I think this quote sets um, the tone quite well since we're going to take a new route towards the ancient alien phenomenon. This week we are guested by Aaron Rabinowitz, a philosopher and an amazing person within the skeptic movement. I, I hope you enjoyed the discussion we had about episode 11 from season 3 called Aliens and the Founding Fathers. I have to admit that we did leave out a couple of things during this discussion. If you head over to this episode's webpage at diggingupancientaliens.com, you will find there what we missed briefly summarized for you. So there's something extra for you, perfect maybe for Thanksgiving and for the upcoming discussions with your uncle Frank. On that note, I want to remind you that you can find sources, resources and reading suggestions on our website, diggingupancientaliens.com. There you will also find contact info if you notice any mistakes or have any suggestions. And if you like the podcast, I would appreciate it if you left one of those fancy five-star reviews that I heard so much about. Now that we're finished with our preparation, let's dig into the episode. So I want to welcome to the show for the first time someone outside the archaeology field, Aaron Rabinowitz. Hello, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to chat about my friends, the ancient aliens. For those who aren't familiar with you, could you maybe give them a brief summary of what you do? And I don't know if I can do a brief summary. <laughs> um, I, broadly speaking, do public philosophy, which means I teach. I'm currently working on a PhD in education with a focus in moral education with a specialization in talking about luck, which I'm going to avoid trying to talk about on this particular podcast. But I also am interested in skepticism, atheism. I do work in both those communities in the skeptical mm. world. I do a bunch of, you know, like side interests in like specifically anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. I've sort of had a lifelong 
interest in the Nazis and what made them tick. And so that led into a lot of study of weird occultism and stuff. And so, you know, I do uh, articles for the Skeptic Mag, as well as a couple of philosophy podcasts that are sort of a mix of trying to help people understand things and cope with things. And yeah, when I'm not doing that, I talk about ancient Jew reptile aliens. <laughs> Exciting. But have you encountered ancient aliens before? Have you watched the TV series when it came out or you have avoided that somewhat? Oh, see, I misunderstood you when you asked when you said before the show that you were going to ask me if I'd encountered ancient aliens. I thought you were asking me if I personally had interacted <laughs> with them, which seemed like a, a tricky question because first answer would be obviously, how would I know? They obviously hide themselves. But second answer would be, of course, I have because I'm Jewish and so I am one. But uh, no, the show itself I was familiar with, but haven't watched like probably nearly as much of it as I imagine you have. I've, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with the memes. I'm familiar with an episode or two. I'm familiar with the incredibly racist nature of the ancient alien <laughs> theories, broadly speaking. We did a Philosophers in Space on Atlantis, and we'll get to, get to chat about that a little bit. But uh, it was fun. You and I got to first meet at QED at the Skeptic Camp, um, yeah. <laughs> where I would say that our our pieces dovetailed together, I thought, in rather an enjoyable ways, the way that you um, laid out the like race-related parts of Ancient Aliens really helped set up sort of the jokes that I was going to make later. Yeah, I'm glad that I was helping you putting up your yokes properly for <laughs> yeah. the attendance. That was a great event. We're dealing a lot with pseudo-archaeology, pseudo-history, and I have to ask, since you're from a different discipline, is there pseudo-philosophy? Yes, I do think there is. It's, this, this is tricky because I'm very broad in who I will call a philosopher. I think everybody's a <laughs> philosopher, and some of us just get to do more of the reading you know, I think even bad philosophers like Ayn Rand are philosophers. Um, so like the question is, you know, this is like a technical thing, a philosophy thing of like, what is the difference between someone just being bad at science or philosophy and someone doing pseudoscience or philosophy hmm. or pseudo philosophy? Um, and as I understand those terms, the pseudo part actually means mimicking the thing in a way that makes it appear like you're doing the real thing. Yeah. Um, so I do think, you know, classically, the people called the sophists, were these individuals who were, you know, taking bad arguments, you know, uh, and making them sound like they're good arguments. So if the goal of philosophy is to make good arguments, then I think making bad arguments well would be pseudo philosophy, potentially. Um, but I also sense. I think like, if you've heard of the sense makers, as a subset of the heterodox universe, I would say what they do a lot of the time where they kind of vibe at each other in a Poet, you know, like what the Guru Pod guys call like a kind of scat poetry for um, people who really like the idea of like emotive rationality. Uh, that is another form, I would say, of pseudo philosophy. It looks like philosophy. It smells like it. But if you dive in, there's no philosophy there. It's nice to hear that uh, it's not only history and archaeology struggling with it. Maybe on different yeah. levels, though. But um, I think that's a different discussion. And I know you said you didn't maybe go into it, but uh, your research field pedagogy of luck. Mm -hmm. Do you have in anything in it that, because I got the questions from time to time, how to deal with people within this area. Do you have anything within this pedagogy that could be helpful when dealing with pseudoscientific claims or the people believing with it? Yeah, I think there's a lot of important implications 
if you take seriously my view, you have to accept that like all of your beliefs are the result of luck. So the fact that you're here talking about debunking ancient aliens instead of here talking about how you believe in ancient aliens hmm. is the result of luck, which means that I think you should be sort of humble about, you know, if you if you do hold what I think are the correct beliefs, you should be humble about it. And you should be compassionate towards those who have the bad luck of holding incorrect beliefs, even if they are conspiratorial cult members, even if they're conspiratorial cult leaders. I think you have yeah. to be compassionate towards them because they are caught up in a really bad trip and that sucks and you wouldn't want to be them. And so I, I do think emphasizing the role of luck and emphasizing the role of luck, I think, can also help us be more cognizant of the fact that if any of us were in a bad place at a particular bad time and the wrong person stepped in to help us, then again, we mm. could be that person believing in whatever that person was selling at that particular moment. So yeah, I think it makes us aware of that, like what drives these beliefs is often, you know, crises and then bad luck of who helps you rather than, you know, the nature of any of these particular claims or stuff like that. From the sound of it, it sounds like quite good approach, you know, going humble into discussing these type of questions as a certain way to, you know, not get people into defense positions from the start. I think that's a lot what Michael Marshall, for example, does in his, <laughs> yeah. I forgot the <laughs> name of Mar his Marsh show, and I have, have thoroughly <laughs> luck-pilled each other with regard to skepticism. We are very much on the same page here. And, and Jonathan Jerry, who was giving a talk uh, Thursday night at QED as well, yeah. there was a whole debate around that talk at the um, <laughs> at the question and answer about like, compassion versus is it okay to call people idiots and is mocking people actually going to help them get out of these positions i just don't see any path by which mocking there's some there's some small theories that like mocking the leaders of these groups could cause the members to become less likely to be you know fully pull, pilled into these into these worldviews but i i think I, i'm skeptical of that and i think more likely what you see is is reinforcement as a result of that but like i, I think the compa it's important to emphasize we should be compassionate towards these people because they're persons who are suffering, yeah. even if it wasn't the most effective model. Like even if the best model was to just absolutely shit on conspiracy theorists all day long, <laughs> I don't think it would be the ethical model because I think that's just like deeply, deeply inappropriate. Yeah, I can agree with that. Even if it's fun, it's not necessarily the, um, you know, the mm -hmm. way forward. Even Some amount you're... of blowing off steam, doing a little dunking here and there so that you don't go, you know, absolutely over the I... deep end. Yeah, you got to survive, <laughs> right? We all got to practice a little self-care, but like, you know, it's a balancing thing. Yeah, it should not be all the things with us. But um, how about we go into the episode I forced you to somewhat watch? Or it yeah. was your free will or was it? Or... Uh, absolutely not. <laughs> never, never with these things. I appreciate that you are using me as your token American as well, since this is the Americans, aliens episodes. Yeah, and you had a lection and we, we're, I have missed all right. the holidays so Apparently far. Apparently the so. aliens wanted the Democrats to not do terribly for once. I, I appreciate that. Thank you, aliens. <laughs> the alien overlords always have a plan. But what did you think about this episode in general? Did you feel that it was very strange or was it somewhat decent or how did you react to it? It was basically what I was expecting. I kind of know the formula of like, take some facts that are true, take some stories that technically were 
said by someone with no corroboration, <laughs> you know, run those together with a lot of what if questions and call it a day. I, I guess I'm curious, actually, since you've probably watched a lot more of this show than I have, what do you feel like is the usual percentage of accuracy to bullshit? And how did you feel about this particular episode? And then maybe I can say a bit about like what parts I thought did seem accurate to me. This one on the surface felt decent, but mm-hmm. that's usually how they do it when they do it. A somewhat reasonable episode is not basically that uh, aliens created slave races and uh, built pyramids. Uh, hundreds of years ago but as soon as you started to scrape on things things started to fall apart in this episode but it was not the most insane i watched uh-huh. but it wasn't either the i had a recent one where they talk about sacred places where they actually had moments of documentary filming and they actually said true things and uh, talk about the hajj for example in islam and how it's performed and how it's ritual and how it where it came from and then mm-hmm. added aliens on top of that afterwards. But they had these moments where, well, this is decent documentary filming. You could almost learn something from it. While this was a bit more, not as inspired, I think. They felt mm-hmm. as they wanted to put the episode together on the Founding Fathers and then just to grab everything they found, which they usually end up doing in a sense. Yeah, so I would say... From my perspective, the stuff that I that I'm actually familiar with to some extent, they were pretty good on like at least the here's what I'd say. The content on the philosophy side was fairly accurate, if Hmm. not necessarily the best characterization of what those individuals were actually doing to some extent. But, we, you know, we can talk through if you want some of the like what they got right, what actually is true about the relationship between philosophy and, you know, theorizing about aliens. Because I actually think it's really interesting that basically from the beginning of philosophy, you already have science fiction. You just have it as yeah. thought experiments. Yeah, let's start as where the episode more or less start too. So let's go into the... <laughs> Well, the worst. They have a UFO encounter, but apparently it's been solved. It was temperature inversion over the Washington, apparently, that gave radar. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, Apparently, we see in the sort even information from the press conference by General John Samford, but Mm -hmm. they quote mine there so they cut where he talks about we've seen a lot of credible things and then they cut Mm -hmm. out the explanation that comes just a few minutes after that quote. It was right. Right. Solved <laughs> quite easily. And that's typical Asian alien with quote yeah. mining. They're using this to get into uh, times of appeal, well, because in times of war and things, we get more UFO, according to ancient aliens. Yeah. And, and I assume someone's done a study on that that's just like, this is just people's trauma reactions, like, you know overreacting and, and like seeing things or hallucinating or something like like there's some sort of you know stress react reaction explanation <laughs> here i assume right yeah and i think this idea comes mainly from uh, world war ii and the foo fighter ideas and uh-huh. during world war ii people tend to look up, up in the sky if airplanes come and bomb you know mm-hmm. you pay more attention to the night sky and of course start to see Things that goes on and that you might not be familiar with, of course. Increased observation leads to increasingly noticing weird stuff. And that that also dies into like the thing, you know, I was saying about the colonialism. There's a real connection here, I think, between the fact that 
as we started to, as Europeans, let's be specific here, started to explore <laughs> the rest of the uh, the rest of the world, it like severely upends the the sort of religiously driven understanding of the history of the world, and so you have hmm. a bunch of people trying to understand the place of indigenous people in the history of the fall and that's like they're doing the exact same thing with aliens and astronomy at this point like it's all the same expanding out recognizing that there's a bunch of stuff that doesn't fit our particular narrative and then like fighting over what to do about that narrative as a result and that's how we get into the idea of a plurality of world where the show claims that it was a quite large discussion, 500-400 BCE, among, uh, who was it, uh, Democritus, Lecipus, Epicurus, uh-huh, right. Lucretius. Was that a big thing? So I think all of these are atomists, early yes. natural philosophers. Yeah, so I, mean, I think what you could say is the argument on which this particular thing was like one of the you know, branches, one of the pieces of the debate between like the atomist materialists and other schools of thought, um, like the specifically Plato and Aristotle, right? Like, so, so mostly they're not wrong about the conflict philosophically here. The thing I would say they get the most wrong about this is that they don't really emphasize that philosophers weren't doing, weren't making these claims based on like observations in what we would think of as like the, the 1500s period where the rise of astronomy leads to increased questioning about this. These are mm. logical arguments. These are metaphysical debates in a sense. And a lot of the debates around aliens are metaphysical. Like whether or not people believed in aliens a lot of times had to do with what they believed in Christianity. And that that's really kind of, I think, tricky for folks to understand a little bit. So the idea goes like this. You have... You know, you're debating the nature of the universe and you have a bunch of competing pre-Socratic theorists Mm. arguing, you know, you have like the the flux, you know, everything is in flux, Heraclitus, folks like that. Um, And then you have, you know, like these debates about like, is the world infinite? Is the world finite? You know, you have the atomists, as you say, which they sort of lay out this theory that, you know, the world is made up of little indivisible atoms that exist yeah. and, and bounce into each other in the void. And when they bounce together enough, they create people and planets and all the things purely mechanistic account of the universe. So all of that, which they talk about a little bit in the show is, is pretty much accurate. Um, and those folks get from, you know, there are an infinite number of atoms to there would have to then, in theory, be an infinite number of worlds, right? Because essentially on a long enough timeline, a bunch of things happen, right? And so they postulate the idea to varying degrees that there are other planets, that like the Earth exists in a void and is not like necessarily, they they don't do the sort of center, like the Copernican inversion, but they do sort of, get as far as I think Epicurus gets as far as saying that there would be animals and persons on planets in other solar systems, essentially. And that gets squashed, basically, um, (laughs) for the most part, right? Basically, what happens is the Platonists and the Aristotelians win out. And while they are 
more, I would say, you know, logical, scientifically oriented than like the purely religious individuals around them. You could argue that they are sort of anti-materialist in various ways. They believe in a teleological account of the universe. They do hmm. believe in gods to some extent. They, you know, all these kinds of things. And so they present alternative accounts, which get picked up by the Christians, basically. So the Christians then, you know, who, who end up, you know, picking up that baton and running with it, push away the idea of materialism, of atomism as being heretical. You know, they make a bunch of arguments for why the universe can't be like the way that folks like Epicurus and, and Democritus believe that it could be. Um, and again, this is the interesting thing. A lot of it is driven by this idea that the story of the Bible has, if it's, if it's going to be true, has to sort of center human beings as the most important figures in the universe, because we're the ones who Christ comes for, and we're the ones yeah. who are sa are saved in this way, <laughs> right? And so, like, if there's aliens, what happens? Does God, you know, does Jesus come to each of them and save all of them? That was generally not a well-received position, because then you get questions about the animals and all the things. So, like, essentially what ends up happening is the kind of denial of the idea of their being other planets and aliens for the sake of avoiding the question entirely, I think, is probably a fairly accurate account. Yeah, I think even though if Christians did have some explanation, I remember, for example, monks discussing uh, half man, half dog that was living, living in the outskirts of the known world, for example. If they had a soul, would they be able to save? So they were discussing a little bit what to do in these circumstances. But do you think that uh, Democritus and Lucretius and the others was talking about aliens, that they believed that they were real in a sense? Yeah. Or was it more a uh, hypothetical thought experiment? Well, so I guess I would say they would, they, this is sort of, it's not technically a thought experiment. I would say it's actually probably a conclusion. So Atlantis, interestingly enough, originates from a thought experiment by yeah. Plato in the Republic, right? Very famous thought experiment. And in that sense, that that is kind of just a pure sci-fi thought experiment. But I think what you, what you would say here is that the atomists inferred that there should be, that there would be all of these entities out hmm. there. And so it's more of a scientific prediction than anything else, right? It's, you know, it's not... They didn't have the capacity to test it or anything like that, but they were essentially saying, look, if our under, if our metaphysics is correct, then the physics is going to involve a bunch of these people running around on different planets and stuff. Yeah, and that's part of philosophy that it has branched out as science has evolved. So physics was more or less a philosophical idea, as I understand it from the start. The same thing is happening with like Platonic and Aristotelian. So Aristotelian physics involves a bunch of weird metaphysical assumptions about the natures of kinds and things like that. And a lot of this stuff gets taken up and interpreted through Christianity and also through Islam. You have a separate sort of track going where it appears, as far as I can tell, that like many of the ancient thinking, some amount of this plurality of worlds was at least argued about, considered in, in those hmm. spaces as well. And then... Essentially, what happens is, according to, you know, as far as I can tell from the literature that I've seen, a confluence of two events, which is, well, three events, let's say, colonialism, 
So yeah. just the expansion on the human uh, on the human planets, but also astronomy. So the the creation of sufficient technology as to absolutely you know more effectively observe the rest of the universe and the reintroduction of various kinds of ancient philosophical thinking during the Enlightenment period, some of that coming back from medieval Islamic scholars who hmm. preserved it. And so all three of those things kind of impinges upon the Christian dominance, the dominance of the Christian narrative with regard to the nature of the universe, metaphysics, etc. Um, and so you have all of these challenges coming in at the same time. And at this, you know, and on top of that, I think you have, and they reference this as well, in that period, the taking up of these ideas by sort of what we will think of eventually as being like liberal or pluralist yeah. ethical individuals, individuals who want to see social progress and using these ideas as a way to push for them, essentially. How do you, would you want love, like to expand on how they use this idea to um, go for social justice? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I want to shout out um, Helen de Cruz, who's actually a mutual on Twitter as well, who wrote a really great piece um, actually just last year on a dazzling multiplicity of worlds. This is Fontenelle's um, plurality of worlds. This is mm -hmm. from 1686. And it's a really interesting piece. And and they, uh, Helen basically summarizes it where it's a series of dialogues between, uh, and, and, and Helen does a great job highlighting this, between a guy and a woman, which was unusual for this period. There were a lot of dialogues during this period, again, reintroducing of the classic approach, yeah. but also... You know, it's unusual for a woman to be in these dialogues and for her to be having what is effectively a, a equal position, though They're, they sort of treat it as like student and teacher. She is described as sort of keeping up throughout the whole thing and understanding it very effectively. So that may, you know, suggest that like there is reason to interpret these things as being kind of progressive ideologically on top of what's in the content. But essentially in the content, what you see is, you know, this argument that these different worlds would have different people who would have different ethics and that the complexity of all of that means that we should be sort of more skeptical of our own sort of parochial ethics. Essentially, hmm. the same argument that I get sometimes when people are like, oh, you think morality is real? Do you think aliens <laughs> have all the same moral truths that we do? And I think, yeah, I think I think they do. But I think they could come to different arrangements on how they want to deal with those moralities. Yeah, of course. But yeah, it's sort of, it's a, it's a way to, similarly again to the way that some liberal philosophers during that period are using stories from indigenous people where you know the people are less like hung up on sexuality or nudity or things like that as sort of jumping off points for arguing that this doesn't necessarily have to be the only way that humans live no it was a very interesting article did you see a lot of um, those ideas in this episode i didn't really see it i found it almost a little bit um yeah ironic that F fontanelle or fontanelle the, I'm probably, probably, probably pronouncing that wrong. Yeah, <laughs> it's all right. We will. I will probably get some angry emails about it later. But Fontanelle, that he seems to strive 
for uh, you want to educate mm-hmm. women that is used in Ancient Aliens, who is not maybe the most famous show for <laughs> that type of thing. Uh, mm-hmm. But you, did you see any of his idea presented here or was it mainly the classic? Uh... Yeah, not very much. And I think that like it's a, it's um, unfortunate that the show sort of starts off in a period that I think is is sort of rich in this stuff and then jumps back to talk about the ancients and then comes back and talks about a bunch of like, you know, grab ass in the woods rather than like diving into more of, you know, the interesting philosophy that I, I do think some of these people would have been familiar with, like, like these writings. Hmm. Instead, it did seem like they left out a lot of those angles, a lot of the colonial interconnected angles of that actual period. Yeah, I don't I don't know if that was just like they knew they they sort of you know, knew that there were connections to the ancients and those were easier to do or something. And they didn't have a good resource at the time on, you know, the plurality of worlds from from the Enlightenment period. Could be, but at the same time, they have spoken about it in the past. I'm not sure if Fontanelle has been uh, presented in previous episode, but mm. that might be possible but also they like the idea of uh, ancient if it's ancient it's more important you know the classic idea if it's ancient knowledge it's better knowledge while Mm -hmm. you know 1700 knowledge is probably building upon it but do you think franklin and the founding fathers would was inspired by fontanelle or did they rely on other philosophers in their yeah so i mean what we do know as far as i've read is that like these people were influenced by a range of thinkers from that period including Locke, or so montesquieu hobbes to some extent um hmm. though interestingly hobbes w- was like the materialist before him kind of on the outs and viewed as a heretic a lot of the time um but i think was still pretty heavily influential i don't know if they said whether they specifically had access to Fontenelle, but I would like the periods would line up in such a way where it certainly wouldn't surprise me. I also think that like, it's weird that they don't talk more about the science of astronomy during this period. They talk a little bit about it, but like the, like the discussions of the canals of Mars and things that are happening. Yeah. They bring up Herschel quite quickly Mm -hmm. and how he built a giant telescope and could for the first time, start to see heavenly bodies a lot better mm-hmm. what they leave out is for example herschel's idea of the lunar civilizations that he was proclaiming in early 1778 for example he mm-hmm. swore that he would be able to see different uh, civilization upon the moons and it was a common idea for example there's some ideas that the moon was looking like a British countryside, according to some um, astronomers. I don't know, they, they don't leave it out from this episode for some reason. Yeah, I don't know. I was also looking at the, you know, there there's interesting sort of overlaps, like I was saying, in the kind of metaphysics and science of this stuff, where it was sort of, I think it was in the Fontanelle where they talk about other the the awareness of the other planets having moons and the Hmm. idea that like our moon stays with us and their moons stay with them yeah and they tie it into this idea that like at some point someone infers that jupiter must have life on it because 
the moons of Jupiter serving the life of Jupiter or something like that, essentially. Oh, right. It comes up in, in the, um, it came up, came up in the episode as well, right? They talk about this as being like an inference that one of the people doesn't quite want to buy into, but that, that you can see there again, the kind of the weird ways in which the philosophizing about the universe being designed for us. Um, another thing we could add in here is that like a lot of the, not a lot of some of the, founders who are not like openly Christian were closer to, you know, deists where deists is, is as close as you get to being an atheist for a mm. lot of people in that period. And deists have this kind of clockwork view of the universe where they think that like God kind of sets things in motion and then things kind of run on their own. They might, they might also believe in potentially free will going along with that, but at least they have a kind of a view that could be sort of readily slotted into this idea of, you know, a bunch of different uh, worlds, you know, acting, all acting mechanistically in yeah. this kind of way, all set in motion by God. And I'm not sure if you really noticed it, but then they start talking about Native American mythology. Yeah, and I wish I knew more about any of that to say anything helpful there. That's certainly, you know... I think probably you've watched a bunch of these where they've talked about probably every creation myth of every, you know, indigenous people everywhere in the world. Yeah, um, and luckily they have a tendency to have a more the plastic shamanist approach towards especially the Native Americans. Sure. It's one of the better mm -hmm. places, to be honest. They are not actually misrepresenting representing the myth but they leaving out that uh, different tribes within the nation the Iroquois nation have a different version of the myth so the sky woman that they bring up she she comes in different shapes of forms have different origins mm -hmm. in some myth she bore a daughter in other myths she bore twins but the connection the show makes is that she comes from heaven and therefore she must be alien. Uh, but again, it's the idea they somewhat have the colonial approach towards this mm -hmm. myth. They know probably better than the Native Americans themselves and explain it to a predominantly white public who takes an interest and wants to be more spiritual in the end. Yeah. yeah. A lot of these interpretations get corrupted for lots of different reasons. Uh, another like big example of this is there's the story of the Nomo and the um, it's an African tribe that mm. sort of some claimed were in contact with aliens and had knowledge like astrological knowledge that they couldn't have had without that advanced technology or something like that. And there's a lot of debate, a lot of skepticism about the idea that like this wasn't helped along by the interpreters and their questions or something, you know, in some way kind of like the, the the process was corrupted or something like that. And I think you you definitely see similar things where people are are collecting stories from the new world and bringing them back and reinterpreting them in various ways for their purposes, whether it's to show that like everybody believes in God or everybody, you know, has, you know, everybody believes in the same flood story or something like that. Um, all those kinds of tricks. There is maybe one kernel of, um, actual connection here that might be worth talking about, which is 
I was just, I just finished reading um, Dawn of Everything, which was a, a good book. I, I'm not good enough to, you know, like know how archaeologically accurate or anything like that it is. But there was at least an interesting section where he, they talk about how it, it is certainly true that observation of indigenous people drove things like social contract theory. So mm. Hobbes, for example, talks about indigenous Americans in Leviathan. Yeah. Um, Rousseau, all these people are being influenced by these stories of people in quote unquote living in the state of nature. Obviously, they're heavily corrupted stories. They don't get a lot of it wrong. Um, but again, it's motivating these questions about what is true human nature. And I think there's there's at least some evidence, it seems like that some of the approaches in in Native American indigenous cultures influence the Enlightenment liberalism by sort of you know, having having the kind of perspectives that we mm. then see carried forward by philosophers of that period who are reading these kinds of things. So, you know, again, I think what you see potentially is indigenous philosophical knowledge being, inter you know, being sort of colonized and then absorbed into European continent, you know, European knowledge, which then takes credit for it as these being enlightenment ideals in, as, 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 in that kind of way. Um, and then they in turn sort of point to these communities and, and use that to justify liberalism or more pluralism or something. Yeah, it's quite interesting, especially early anthropology, but it's also quite problematic, something we have discussed quite a lot on this show, mm -hmm. their mythology, and as you said, with the Nomo, sometimes quite flawed from what I understand from the Nomo is that probably uh, the anthropologists involved hold a little bit too much with the people there. It haven't been able to be replicated later by other anthropologists, which, you know, right. makes it a bit, especially a with the Native American legends, we have a lot of instances where anthropologists infiltrate tribe to get uh, mm, to their yeah. knowledge and then uh, publish it against their will. It's a bit yeah. give and take mm. about it when it comes to giving it to the philosophers that they are some promoting social justice but building on ideas that has been robbed from the people, basically, in a sense. Yeah, and I don't know how much speaks to the quality of either of these books, but two books that I would highly recommend in this area is um, uh, Learning to Divide the World by Walensky, who's actually an education historian, but does a, you know, a lot of tying together of the hmm. history of colonial knowledge production, essentially, across a bunch of different disciplines. And then uh, God of, uh, Gods of the Upper Air by King, which is a accounting of the Boaz group and their sort of early anthropological work. Um, and, and, you know, like it does a really great, that second book especially, I think does an amazing job describing the challenges of doing this work. But, you know, like yeah. you're trying to form relationships, but you don't want to impact too much. Like, to what degree do you get involved versus not like to what degree is this relationship, you know, so exploitatively asymmetrical that there's no way to have, you know, an earnest interaction with these particular individuals. But it's also a great book because it's another example in in these same in the same sort of arc of cultural expansion where individuals are using this research to motivate rejection of of cultural norms around sexuality yeah. and, and marriage and things like that no but it seems like a good approach and something we need to talk about when we're studying people and when is it 
not predatory necessary, but when uh, yeah, when mm-hmm. are we using people and when are we actually doing something that make benefit and what's the cost of the research? I think it's always something to have in mind when dealing with especially people and even history to some extent. What does mm-hmm. my research tell and what will the end be with it? Yep. And you should be really skeptical about any appeals to nature or yeah. indigenous yeah. ways of being <laughs> as somehow, you know, pure or, or different or any, you know, like, I, I think it's probably pretty skeptical. I'm pretty skeptical of the idea that you can know a ton about human nature even even by studying indigenous peoples in these kinds of ways mm. like i think that's that's not not the ideal approach personally um i think it's interesting to learn a lot about these individuals but we should be really questionable about like you know what inferences we're making based on that yeah we need to question our motivation and our conclusions these type of things and when we are on the subject of questioning a thing do you think it's a difference between as we're going into the next section there a mm-hmm. difference between misinformation and disinformation sure yeah i mean i think I'm fine with Jonathan's uh, <laughs> distinction there between, you know, harmful but not intentionally harmful information versus intentionally harmful or intentional misinformation, essentially, which is what we what we usually mean by disinformation is knowingly disseminating misinformation, usually either to personal gain or to cause harm or something like that. And I would say... You know, they're different in how you deal with them. If you have somebody who's accidentally sharing misinformation, you want to engage with them to some extent differently. And generally, probably we should be inclined to give people the benefit of the doubt that they are engaging in misinformation and not disinformation, though once they're, you know, theoretically making large amounts of money from it or something like that, it gets problematic, though, of course, if you say you're making a bunch of money, so you're doing this knowingly, then that's also what conspiracy theorists say. So good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> I tend to lean towards just assuming that everybody is engaged in misinformation and not disinformation. I think I, I, I tend to think that most people are true believers. And I've talked to a bunch of different skeptics about their different fields of skepticism. And generally speaking, most of them will actually like shy away from the question of do people really believe X? Right. Yeah. Because we don't know and we can't know and it doesn't matter. Yeah. Right. Like what matters is they're spreading misinformation and that's not good. And and like I think the approach to solving both versions is still going to be, you know, addressing them as if they genuinely believe the things that they are saying. The, the one except, you know, like there's some exceptions there in terms of utility cost where like eventually you stop like taking Alex Jones seriously and that's fine. <laughs> right. You know, like eventually there is a point at which, you know, this is this is like um, Sartre talking about fascists that like you don't you don't want to spend too much time trying to debunk somebody who is very clearly acting in bad faith. Yeah, because then they're just serving as a sink for your energy and time. But generally, even then, like you're not becoming you know aggressive towards them. You just move on to trying to help somebody who's more reachable. That seems very fair in point. But uh, as an American. Now you're my token American. Uh, do sure. you feel that there's a sort of deification of Washington in uh, the U.S.? Sure. Oh, for sure. All the founding fathers. Absolutely. <laughs> it's a huge problem. We have a weird cult of the founding fathers. Uh, yeah, like we can't. People get weird when you take down a Jefferson statue, for example, because you don't want someone up who owned slaves. Yeah. And like, I think that's silly. I think, you know, I think you can say, look. 
Jefferson did some good things, but also some really, 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 really bad things. Hmm. And like, we can be thankful for the good things, but we do not have to like lionize these individuals or sweep the harms under the rug or stuff like that. Like, I think alongside the Declaration of Independence, we should be teaching that Jefferson helped monetize slavery by creating the instruments needed to keep that afloat financially. So like, that's not good. Uh, and that caused a lot of human suffering. And and like Washington in particular, I think there's a weird, you know, sure, Jefferson isn't the best. And, you know, like the other ones aren't great or something like that. But like Washington is the special one or something, yeah. even though, again, also owned slaves, you know, didn't free the slaves upon his death. Like there's the, there's very, I'm sure people experts in this, you know, can point to a lot more problems. Um, <laughs> but like the reality is they're, you know, they're just people doing the thing. Hmm. Um, and I think it's, it, it's obvious. Like one of the big problems with the ancient alien stuff, I think we could say is that like, it really buys heavily into the great man theory of history, emphasis on the man. Like it's all about how the aliens would recognize that Washington is going to be this amazing, successful, whatever, and like go down and, and like bless him in this kind of way. Um, you know, that's, that's not how history works, right? No. It's a very backwards looking <laughs> account of history and it's absurd. And, you know, if things had gone differently, we'd be talking about how King George was visited by aliens. There's the likelihood that we even have uh, the incense, what do they call them? The green skins which I found right. almost a bit offensive. But at first, one of those yeah. instances where I heard it, okay, it's probably some Native American with green paint. But um, apparently... Right, we're, we're assuming these are like, you know, soldiers, people he's working with or something. It's worse right? than... Like scouts. Yeah, it's worse right? than... Make the most sense if they were just scouts. <laughs> it's worse than that. The whole section about the green skin that he meet in the forest according to the show is uh, made up in late 1990s there's a journalist who claimed that he found a journal in a castle somewhere in scotland and then the sun published it and since then it's been part of uh, you know the internet consciousness as truth basically Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah that doesn't surprise me no yeah one of those a lot of these stories you could tell me like either version like wouldn't necessarily surprise me if you were like you know benjamin franklin read fontanelle while doing coke off a french (laughs) hooker and then was like yeah i believe in fucking aliens i would believe that i would believe that was a true event when we're on truth you're dealing with a lot of conspiracies in your um, or some at least in your column in the skeptic magazine uh, the UK. I try to do all of them, but it's hard. There's a lot. <laughs> uh, but how about this idea that all these Freemason symbols in DC? I understood yeah. that you have um, some interesting connections there from your previous <laughs> research. Yeah, and I'm not like I'm not an expert on what you know we call secret societies or something like that. I don't know the, a lot of the ton, you know, the details of the ins and outs of the Freemasons, nor has it been my concern to like try to figure out what particular exact kind of bullshit they were peddling at different points in time in history. I generally assume that these are, you know, social orgs where powerful individuals can, you know, meet in back rooms with other powerful individuals and have conversations about things that interest them because they have time and money to read books. Yeah. And like, 
Right. There is, of course, unfortunately, the long history of connecting all of these groups, whether it's the, you know, Freemasons or the Bavarian Illuminati or whatever to the Jews. Right. This goes you have the protocols of, of Zion. Um, and again, another example, I think, of where you can see a tie in to the history of cultural progress is that that part of the conspiratorial history is in reaction to fighting back against the aristocracy, essentially Napoleon and also the French Revolution are Hmm. treated as being sort of puppets for Jews and that the protocols are sort of this this forgery that props up this theory. And that that forgery, of course, gets repopularized at various points um, throughout history. So, you know, again, these explanations, like I think there's a there's a funny sense in which so many people in the world at that time can't except that this is just humans realizing that they don't want to be horrible to each other quite as much anymore or something. And instead it has to be Jew aliens, you know? (laughs) So yeah, the Freemasons, right. A stand in for Jews often. I, in the, in the skeptic camp video uh, talk that I gave, um, I used a image of what's what's called the food, the food tree, I think, or something like that, or the Hmm. food chain. And one of the images on it is a mashup of the happy merchant, which is a a very famous, everybody's seen this. It's the the shystery looking Jew with his hands rubbing together and his giant nose. But it was a version of that as a Freemason. And he had um, Freemason symbol in front of him. And, you know, there, like, of course, the truth is there are Freemason symbols all over like Washington and American <laughs> stuff because yeah, they were into that weird symbolism stuff. There's also like fascist symbols everywhere too. There's fasces and all, you know, like lots of weird stuff. Uh, symbolism is weird, but it doesn't prove anything. Um, yeah. And they have, they have a whole part in there in the video, I think where, where they talked about like the, the point of the symbol where you like you're the center of the universe and you draw a circle around yourself yeah. and it has like meaning or import. I mean, sure. You know, uh, the, the eye, the pyramid, all of that weird symbolism stuff. Um, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't prove anything, but it's weird. If you don't understand it, it must be alien. I think, but as people have putting weird symbols everywhere especially if you're part of this kind of social club i assume that you want to put your club logo everywhere you can put it for example here in sweden it's not uncommon that we still well sweden didn't maybe have the best approach during world war ii or well we weren't in war but we wasn't too vocal about it but uh, so we still Mm -hmm. have uh, a lot of swastikas especially in 1930 buildings for example if you go on some streets built in the 30s you can look up and see a giant swastika and you know oh yep those you just gotta turn (laughs) turn them around it'll be fine just flip them over yeah it would be fine but now it's too old to really change something about it apparently so yeah it's is that a load-bearing swastika (laughs) like i feel like i feel like that you can probably redo that architecture but you know that's just me in sweden when things come to a certain age it becomes protected so these building has started to come in protective class, so to say, so they can't just um, knock things out and uh, wall it against, even mm. if it's technically possible and mm-hmm. probably quite easily done. And it wouldn't be surprising to me, I'll, I'll add, that like maybe the founding fathers believed in ancient aliens, like believed in aliens, right? Like <laughs> insofar as this was a a concept that existed in their world and 
people tend to think of themselves, you know, as being blessed in all sorts of weird different ways. So whether it's, you know, God picking your team to win or aliens picking your team to win, I think people people will take any help they can get or something like that, right? Yeah, and I think people always have wrestled with the question, are we alone? Is there something else beside us? Is there something bigger? So going that, you know, mm. that we're the only chosen species is quite a leap to make, I think, for people. If you're not very sure. into some religions, but that's a yeah. different... Especially if you're living in the quote-unquote new world surrounded by a bunch of wilderness to you and a bunch of people who are very, very different, it seems to you. Like, that's a mind-expanding experience to some extent, maybe. You know, ast- astrology is just opening up the means to look at the stars change and you start to see things on the surfaces. So, of course, it's something that you probably discussed and quite logical idea to discuss and we're still doing it to this day looking for life outside but there's a different on discussing and looking for it and say well they are out there and they've been here i don't know if this is the right time to jump in and include this but i think it it was really funny to me in sort of in sort of terms of like fact checking to what extent any of this matters to anyone outside of the ancient (laughs) aliens world i actually came across an article on the discovery institute website are are you familiar with discovery institute there's a lot of bells going off in my head but i can't really place it yes (laughs) they're the creationist peoples they're the ones who did the right teach the controversy intelligent design creationism in schools that's where chris rufo got his start before he did the crt moral panic so these are you know Christian, you know, uh, very serious, take take themselves seriously, believe this thing. And they have a site called, uh, they have a page that says Alien Ideas, Christianity and the Search for Extraterrestrial Life. This is from back in 2002, where they work through a lot of the stuff that you and I just talked about. (laughs) Like they talk about the materialists, the ancients, they talk about the rise of the modern extraterrestrial debate. Um, They talk about you know, secularization and the concerns about how these things, like I said, are used to justify sort of moral degradation potentially or something like that. And they do end this thing by saying, you know, I'm going to read the last paragraph. I am as prepared for the arrival of extraterrestrials as I am for that of elves. And for the same reason, all evidence points to their non-existence. And yet it remains a very, very remote possibility. So remote that to change our central doctrines to accommodate either possibility would be folly. So they still think that they're, they would have to change their doctrines in order to accommodate the existence of aliens. And their argument here, by the way, is going to be like a, a pessimism about, you know, Fermi paradox kind of stuff, essentially, yeah. right? That like... There's no aliens out there because bottlenecks and time and stuff. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting to see the relationship between Christianity and religion and ancient aliens because it was, or it is a lot more common than I thought when I was venturing into this. Especially the Mormons have this strange fascination with ancient aliens and even funded expedition in the past. I feel like maybe all religion to some extent, but certainly in my experience of Christianity, there's an anxiety. Like maybe they, maybe it isn't a high anxiety. Maybe they find it, you know, they don't take it seriously at all. But like some amount of trying to make sure that we're not going to end up thinking that God's an alien, you know, that like 
sure we can talk about Thor being an alien and Stargate or something like yeah. that. But like, you know, we never we never have God show up in the MCU, right? Because God's got to be different from all those kinds of things. But I think, <laughs> you know, there's some anxiety that if you really take seriously the plurality of worlds, it becomes a lot more plausible that like, at best, whatever was happening in all of these holy texts is, you know, like, well, you see the same things with like um, the Bhagavad Gita, right? Analyses. Yeah. I'm sure you've probably watched an Ancient Aliens episode about, you know, Indian alien spacecrafts and their nuclear bombs and yeah, stuff like that's, that, right? Um, that's a very common idea. I don't really understand why the Christians letting the ancient alien people operate so freely. They're good at protesting, mm-hmm. you know basically everything but ancient alien for mm-hmm. especially Giorgio Sokolos and David Childress are big proponents of uh, you know angels means aliens because a- angels doesn't exist that's silly you know god right. also alien right and yet right. we don't really see you know the christians outside ancient aliens live tours with signs uh, trying uh-huh, to uh-huh. protest them, but it seems as they just ignore it and it will go away approach maybe in this case. I'm not really sure. Mm. I guess they probably they don't get enough like people being really worried about it amongst their congregations to actually prioritize it. Yeah. I, I know we're, we're probably running short on time, but it occurred to me when I was also doing this research that it would be worth discussing. There's another aspect of the plurality of worlds, which is the possible worlds as opposed to actual planets. Mm. Um, so there's a philosophical connection, you know, in, in the modern alien world, right? Your, your David's Ikes and whatnots. A lot of them, I think have pivoted, not all of them. I don't know. Some amount of them, it seems like have pivoted to multidimensional aliens, right? Mm. That like, we're going to avoid the question of like, why are the aliens, you know, flying across vast distances just to play grab ass with farmers. (laughs) And instead we're going to say, well, they actually coexist around us all of the time. And we just like are slightly out of phase with them or something like that. And a lot of that stuff to me reads like the same way that these arguments were picking up on philosophical ideas and thought experiments. They were picking up on this, what what David Lewis talks about in his book on the plurality of worlds, where he talks <laughs> about how they're, how, how he tries to explain modal realism, which is the idea that what we mean when we say, you know, half the time you miss that shot and half the time you make that shot is that there's a bunch of worlds and in 50% of them you make the shot and in 50% you don't. <laughs> and we're referring to the 50% when we say those are the ones that you miss, right? Yeah. And and that's like a weird solution to a philosophical problem that is purely logical, is not empirical at all, <laughs> but then gets picked up as an empirical theory by a lot of people. And a lot of people's modern understanding of multiverse yeah. is essentially a David Lewis modal understanding of the multiverse often in very strange ways where it's like, you know, we think that every time a choice is made, the universe fractures off in a bunch of different ways and stuff. And that is very similar to Lewis and gets you these kind of weird, you know, aliens are actually just us from the fifth dimension trying to contact us from the future to prevent some harm. Yeah. That's your Mothman right there. (laughs) Yeah. Seems a bit nervous that every choice shattered the universe in a sense. Yeah, it, it raises a lot of weird problems. Um, but again, purely logical uh, until you decide <laughs> to just pretend that it's actually real. So, you know, I just think it's fascinating to me as somebody who loves and grew up on science fiction, who loves philosophy and who's interested in 
politics, the way that these things feed into each other, mm. that you have, you know, philosophers theorizing about metaphysics leading to beliefs about the physical world, which lead to moral claims about how we should let people do what they want and stop murdering them. Yeah, it's very interesting, but um, I think we're running a bit short on time. But if I could borrow a few more minutes from you. Sure. I did. It was must have been a year ago, an uh, episode where we talked about Atlantis. And um, you have some best experience with it. And what we kind of left out in that episode was the philosophic aspect of it. Um, we yeah. have mentioned it a little mm-hmm. bit before, but... How do you as a philosopher see on Plato's uh, writings? Was he meant to be literal or was he talking? So I'm not enough of a of a Platonist scholar, I would say, to know for sure if we should interpret the Republic as, you know, literal or hypothetical. I think, you know, I do think it reads like to me like a very long form thought experiment. Hmm. And I think... So, so my understanding of the role of Atlantis in philosophical thinking ties in the ancient world to the thought of the cyclical nature of history and time. They sort of viewed the world as going through these cycles of high society and and chaos, mm. essentially. Um, and so, you know, to varying degrees, they worked out the details of those cycles, like you go from you know, uh, authoritarian to democratic to anarchic, you know, circle, circle, circle. And so if you believe that kind of view, it would be reasonable that you would think that the world would include previous ancient, highly advanced civilizations that then collapsed, leading to your, you know, you unless you assume that you're the first, right? <laughs> the cyclical nature would suggest that like there would be previous versions of you. And so what Atlantis, I think, serves as is one version of that where you can say, you know, here's the civilizations before us that had really amazing technology, but pissed off the gods or something like that. Yeah. Um, or, you know, fell to uh, uh, barbarians or something, right? There's a common reoccurring theme in these literatures often of like, you have a beautiful, perfect society and then horrible outsiders ruin it. <laughs> so I think that's how it fits in to me in that period. And then it comes back uh, in a, with a vengeance in the kind <laughs> of um, enlightenment and post-enlightenment period in conjunction with eugenics and philosophy about the nature of persons Mm. the evolution of persons psychology human dispositions all these kind of things people you know uh, a lot of folks make arguments that like atlantis is the source of the good races and the other places (laughs) are the source of the bad races and that gets really bad um so i i think yeah i think it does show up in lots of really interesting ways and i I think it's unfortunate because I think Stargate Atlantis is the best Stargate show there is, but I also think Atlantis is kind of an irretrievably compromised, deeply racist trope at this point. Yeah, I think the ship has sailed for Atlantis being cool again. As you said in I your... assume you talked about the Nazi Atlantis house and all that sort of... We have you know. brushed a little bit upon it. Um, it comes up mm-hmm. uh, from time to time, especially with the people involved. Talked about uh, Kaisi, for example, a few episodes ago mm-hmm. and his idea of uh, the Atlanteans storing all their knowledge under the Sphinx uh, in Giza. Mm, right, right. You have the Sphinx, you have 
you know, trips to, I think, Tibet and you're looking for Ultima Thule. Yeah. I was really fascinated in undergrad with the esoteric side of Hitlerism and Nazism and, you know, their obsession with Ultima Thule as their sort of ancient location and thinking that it was in Greenland or Atlantis or the Antarctic. I also really like Again, a horribly compromised source, but Lovecraftian stuff in relation to those periods, partly because he's sort of somewhat connected to those periods. Um, but the, the just like I think he really taps into a very large zeitgeist about people trying to tie themselves to the cosmic in yeah. one way or another. If people want to hear more from uh, you, where should they go? I can't imagine why they would want to do that. <laughs> yeah, sure. You can find Embrace the Void, which is a lot of stuff like this. A lot, you know, It's a lot of interviews with people who, about philosophy, politics, various things that uh, culture war, conspiracism, all the good stuff. Um, and then there's Philosophers in Space, where we take a piece of science fiction and ruin it for you by talking <laughs> about the philosophy in it. No, we have a lot of fun. And we did an Atlantis episode where I ruined Disney's Atlantis. If you remember that movie positively, I apologize. Don't listen to my episode because it, you'll regret it. But yeah, it's we mostly have a lot of fun. And again, Uh, science fiction is just philosophy with better special effects and that always has been and always will be since uh plato apparently and i guess at etv pod on twitter feel free to find me there you can message me voidpod at gmail.com come join the philosophers in space facebook group now that twitter is going to collapse into the <laughs> void again yeah elon musk is an ancient alien did we cover all the topics reptilian and um <laughs> lastly are you convinced now that the ancient aliens have uh affected the american history yeah well i would say you know they don't exist but the concept of them does and the concept of them has affected american history because a bunch of americans believed in them at various points and acted differently because of it so yeah i would say those ancient aliens out there messing with our history i think that's one of the greatest answer i've gotten to that question yet but uh <laughs> <laughs> beliefs are real and they influence things causally never really put it that way but i think that's a good point to end on thank you aaron for joining in here <laughs> i apologize on that bombshell we will end this episode you heard it here first i want to thank aaron again for giving us his time if you want to hear more from him you find links to all of his stuff in the show notes and of course his twitter And, of course, it will be linked on this episode's webpage. I also want to thank Kate from the Drunk Mythology Gals podcast, who lended her voice for the little intro skit there. you find links to their stuff in the show notes. Next time, we're going to look into some lost worlds. How are they lost? Is it metaphorically, or did they really disappear? Tune in next time and we will learn what aliens did and didn't do. But till then, remember to leave a positive review anywhere you can, such as iTunes, Spotify, or even better, to your friends, share an episode or two. I would also recommend visiting diggingupancientaliens.com to find more info about me and the podcast. You can also find this show on most social media sites, including Twitter, maybe, when this releasing. And if you have comments, corrections, suggestions, or you want to write an email in all caps, you'll find the contact info on the website. There, you will also find sources, resources that we use to create this podcast. And 
you will also often find further reading suggestions if you want to learn more about these subjects. Sandra Martelor created the intro music and our outro is by the band called Trallskruv, who sings their song Tinfoil Hat. Links to both of these artists can find, be found in the show notes. Until next time, keep shoveling that science. She replied, I count the inhabitants of Australia as known because surely they must resemble us closely and we'll ultimately know them when we want to take the trouble to go and see them. But we'll never know the people on the moon. And that is heartbreaking. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode. Remember that we have a subscription going on. You can become a patron or other subscriber for as little as $2.50 per episode. Go to diggingupancientaliens.com support. That is, go to diggingupancientaliens.com support to read more information and sign up right there. 